I'm Chuck Norris, and I approve this game. Between the time when gamers played with miniatures and chainmail, and the rise of the Wizards of the Coast, there was an age of advanced role-playing undreamed of. And onto the Skygats, destined to bear the jeweled crown of TSR upon a troubled brow. It was given to teach us all how to roll for initiative. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's get ready to rumble! This is the Roll for Initiative Podcast, volume number three, issue 153. Letters to the editor number five this week. DM Vince sitting with DM Nick. Hi, folks. And the infamous DM Chad. And you can't say infamous without famous. Hey there, how are you doing? Good, good, good. So, Chad, what's been going on with the Dead Game Society podcast? Well, we've actually put two new episodes out. We did an episode where we review the classic game Boot Hill. And we also have an interview out with Jeff Grubb, who... Created a lot of games, uh, some of which Spelljammer, mm-hmm. Al-Kadim, uh, just a ton. Marvel uh, superheroes, great interview, great guy. Yeah, we did Love speak Marvel to him a long time ago when we did the uh, the plane, uh, the Manual of the Planes. Manual of the Planes, yes. Yes, we did. That was a while ago. Yeah, he's a really interesting guy. Very prolific game designer. Yes. Isn't he in the middle of, um, I forget the name of the game online he was creating. Oh, I just had the tip of my tongue. I thought, I know he was involved in some online multiplayer game. He was involved in Guild Wars. That's it, Guild Wars 2 was, that's what it was. Hmm. He was involved in the design in that? No, the uh, story design, not the actual video game design. Oh, still very cool. Oh yeah, he was. Yeah, uh, yeah. I think he's still working on that. I'm not sure if he is. Right, the last time I looked, he was. So, but uh, oh, I think that was cool because nice. I used to play Guild Wars a lot. It was a really cool free game. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so uh, Nick, what have you been up to? We haven't heard from you in a while. Yeah, you know, just life. What can I say? Uh, but uh, had another uh, game session with uh, my Castle Greyhawk campaign. Going along really well. Everybody's everybody's enjoying it, uh, so I'll keep it going as long as everybody's having fun. But I have some alternatives to, you know, maybe in a year or so down the road. If if, if everybody's getting bored, if they want to try something new. I got some ideas, but I know by the time the show comes out, it'll be probably right around October. And our October game, everybody decided we're going to play Call of Cthulhu, and I'm going to run it. I'm like, okay, <laughs> nice. So nice. I got, a, I got a, yeah, I got a scenario picked out. I'm not sure if we're actually going to play on the 31st. 31st is a Friday. It would work out great, mm-hmm. but I got to check with everybody. Sometime in the next few weeks, we are going to do a, a Call of Cthulhu. Uh, one off, and I got the perfect scenario. It'll definitely be just for, you know, perfect for a one night game. So I'm looking yeah. forward to that. So, so when, something different. When you play the game, are you going to set the mood? Like put some music on in the background, do some candlelight. Mm, 
I don't know, sit in the mood candlelight. Wait, I'm trying to romance my wife or scares people. I don't know. It depends. You could sacrifice uh, somebody. Well, we nah, that definitely the wife would not be around for that. Uh, um, but uh, yeah, not not her sort of cup of tea. But uh, I try doing I, that. I sometimes. I do sometimes. I'll I'll like before the game starts. I'll probably have my laptop there with a couple of speakers. Maybe start playing some music. Kind of get the the mood going. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of good free stuff out there on YouTube that I found. And that's where any game I'll do either like for my Greyhawk campaign or something. And when the game starts, I'll stop that stuff. But just kind of you know somewhere in the background while everybody's getting ready. Um, but. I think we mentioned a, we had a show long, long, long time ago, way back when, that we talked about you know doing props for for games and Call of Cthulhu is one of those games where having props or um, I, I'll, I'll like handouts yeah, really fine. lends to it. In right. fact, I, I'm I'm almost certain that Call of Cthulhu is the first role playing game where I had handouts of that nature that were rather prolific for the game so oh, yeah, yeah i'm gonna call have cthulhu some really cool a great one for that I yeah it is call of cthulhu uh, oh, i yeah, did a titanic really adventure actually. and actually handed out players the actual menus that were used oh, on that's the titanic cool. yeah, yeah yeah they had boarding passes and everything it adds a, a little bit of immersion you know the to, to get people into if not into the characters, but also into the environment that they're in, it gives them a sense of being there, at least a little bit. So I, I'm really looking forward to that. So what about you, Vince? What have you been up to? Well, I haven't played in a couple of weeks because uh, now the summer is finally almost over here, and uh, most people went back to because where I live is a college town, so yeah, most of the people went back to college or they went back home, so there's been no real playing here. The only thing that's available is um, a Pathfinder game, and I sat in one or two games, and I was just like, meh. I mean, I like Pathfinder, but it's meh. not it's not my game, so I'm just it's just something to right. be social and play. So, mm-hmm. and then it was a fifth edition game going on, and I just kind of looked at it and just watched it and observed it, and it just I don't know. I haven't made this my decision yet. I haven't read the rest of the books, so yeah. So um, it did mention that when we did our little review of fifth edition, there were some people that were a little bit, uh, <laughs> how do I put it? I don't know. Uh, I guess unhappy. Yeah. Would be it. Yeah. But well, you know, I thought we gave it a fair shake. I didn't think yeah. we were like really lambasting the thing. No, but we did compare it to first edition, which a lot of people were like, well, it never should be compared to, but that's the whole point of this show was, mm-hmm compare right. and contrast so and there were a few points that we were laughing at certain things maybe we shouldn't have but oh well one thing we yeah, didn't it hear is what it is we didn't hear chad's opinion on fifth edition really because he was not available that day that's true yeah well you know here's the thing i can't really give an educated opinion on fifth edition because i haven't read it yet uh yeah. you know i haven't had a chance to play it and i haven't read it so i can't really give you my opinion on it mm-hmm. it, it might be a great game i don't know I'm when it, you know I'm I'm pretty happy with the games that I'm playing right now. So, you know maybe the urge will hit me to try out something different. At which case that may become a candidate. At which point you know I'd want to sit down and read it and, and figure out what it's mm-hmm. all about. And obviously, if I'm playing fifth edition, or if I'm going to play fifth edition, it's not 
you know, I'm, I'm going to play it because I want to do something a little different than first edition. Otherwise, I just keep playing first edition. Mm-hmm. Right. I, I, guess... I just think people don't understand that, you know, you can't help just comparing it to something that, you know, what you know. Well, that's, I think that's just kind of a given. Well, now the fifth edition's out, we'll, we'll keep you updated what we think about it. Now, I'm sure that uh, Dead Game Society is looking at fourth edition to add to their repertoire right now. <laughs> uh, not currently. <laughs> uh, maybe eventually. But right now, you know, there's just so many great games out there that are out of print. You know, we just have a, a ton of games right now on our on our list of games to, to talk about. So I know we are going to be talking about Traveler uh, in the next month. Oh, that'll be fun. Yeah, it should be. Uh, I've actually been uh, uh, talking to some people who are, I think everybody could agree, are fairly knowledgeable on the system. And we're also talking about uh, doing Gamma World uh, pretty soon. We've had a lot of interest. In exactly. So, yeah, we've got, got a few games on the horizon, a few out-of-print games. Cool. Very excited for it. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, if you want to retry- Traveler was one of those games, I remember when it first came out, when I said, man, you got to, this game is brutal because your character can die in creation. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of that before. <laughs> so. Yeah, Traveler is just such a, it's, it's a really cool game. And it's, it's yeah, one it of those is. games that it, it has its own cult following. And that's always, that's always a good indicator for a game because that means that there's a, that it's interesting enough that it's, it's kind of created its own uh, cult personality, I guess you'd say. And yeah. So, yeah, I love games where, and I and I love games that have a very involved uh, character creation system because that's at the end of which you you're really kind of invested in your character, and it's not a character you're you, you know you can just write off at the drop of a hat. You know, I've I've played in games before with people who are not so much into the role play aspect, you know, you know, hey, what's the name of your character? I don't know. That's not important. What? <laughs> so, you know, to each his own. That's mm-hmm. not my cup of tea, but uh I think Traveler is not one of those games. You know, and there, there's yeah, great always... games out there that that don't require a lot of, of you know, like uh Marvel superheroes is wonderful and it doesn't have this super right. huge character creation, but it's still fun. Yeah, it Traveler always maybe I, I've always remembered it was like quote unquote the D and D of star, of science fiction role playing, you know it had that kind of air about it for the longest time, and um, I've always pictured that you know Traveler as a game that is really it's really gritty in its look on science fiction. You know, it mm-hmm. wasn't it wasn't a um, I guess they actually tried the interject more science into the game than like uh you know a game like star frontier star trek yeah or, or star yeah. trek yeah and it's it interesting i was a, uh, it tend to be a little more low tech on the science fiction scale i guess yeah uh, you know when i was at uh i was sitting at i was at nexus game fair actually and i i had the opportunity to have some drinks with zeb cook and oh, we cool. talked a little bit about uh, we uh, he he did a little bit of comparing and contrasting Star Frontiers from Traveler. That 
was really interesting. But, you know, it, it is different. You know, I like a grittier sci-fi game, I think. You know, it's like comparing Alien uh, to Star Trek. You know, Star yeah. Trek's not that gritty. Star Trek's more idealistic. Yes. Well, you know, I, there's I a totally lot to be agree. said for that, too. Yeah, <laughs> it, it depends on what you like. I mean, and there's nothing wrong with that. Heck, I played my fair Star Trek as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Indeed, cool. indeed. Cool, cool, cool. Uh, RFIstaff at gmail.com is our email address. RFIpodcast.com is our website. 570-865-4210 is the hotline. You, know, or you can go to facebook.com slash RFIpodcast. You can go to G+, find our community page there. We're everywhere where you want to be. And nowhere at the same time. Absolutely. And, <laughs> hey, Nick. Mm. Guess what? Yes. Uh, what? September... It is over almost now, right? Yeah, we're getting counting it down the last few days. And September marks five years of this podcast. You, you wow. get out of town. No way. Mm-hmm. Five years? Five years? I've been with it almost the whole five years. I I think almost. Yeah, you came on about episode six, I think it was. Uh, Maybe a little bit later than that. I think it was around there. Six or seven, maybe around there. Yeah. Nine. I don't know. I, I, it was at the. It was like at the end of two thousand nine. I came on. Mm. Oh so, man! Can't even imagine a role for initiative without DM Nick. Yeah, you know it's it's wow. What a strange trip it's been. Or DM <laughs> Christopher Walken. No, jeez. No, no, I won't get started on that. <laughs> <laughs> Though I've had a suggestion. I've had a suggestion. On maybe a, a maybe uh, on a segment, oh, and you know Christopher Walken would be in the segment. You'd show up. What was the segment? Maybe be the dungeon master. Ask Christopher Walken. Well, Ask. maybe other maybe other notable figures would show up as well, along with Mister Walken, like Homer Simpson. Yeah. Maybe I might show up there and I'll play an elf, but I always die. I see Homer more as a dwarf. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, truly. truly. <laughs> or just the dumb fighter. Mm-hmm. He just gave me a sword and cut his head off. <laughs> yeah. We have, to, uh, we have to knock on Blackstone's door because he's been getting a paycheck but hasn't produced anything in a while. Must work for the government. Uh. <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so let's head into the meat of our show, and uh, we'll be right back. Your attention, please. Do your adventures fall flat? Encounters provoke yawns. Monsters need bite. Magic items misfire. Well, here at the WGP Think Tank, our experts are here to provide excitement, snap, and dynamic energy to game masters who are tired, burnt out, or just plain stuck. And we do it in about 30 minutes or less. Your mind will expand. Come in. You just entered. The Brainstorm. The Brainstorm Podcast. Twice a week, 30 minutes per episode or less. Brainstormpodcast.info for more information. Thanks. Master. Master. They're at the gates again. Master. It looks like another band of adventurers. 
adventurers, again? Always the same. Coming to me for sage advice. We'll jump right into uh, voicemails and emails for our letters to the editor this week. We have Let's our... open up the mailbag here. Well, we got our, vo- our voicemails first. Oh. So, right, I'll put the mail down. Yeah, put the mail down for one second, Nick. Yeah, I know you're excited, Sorry. but... <laughs> so, first one, uh, here we go. Oh, well, well, if I click the button right, here we go. <laughs> Push the button, Frank. <laughs> Hi, this message is for the Roll for Initiative podcast. This is DM Steve in Texas. I just wanted to say uh, I listened to Vince and Nick's uh, debrief on the 5th edition game, and uh, the only thing that makes me vomit more than listening to DM Crispy is thinking about all the ways that Wizards screwed up the new edition. So, that's it for me. Short one this time. Bye, guys. Yeah, that was uh, one of our <laughs> loyal <laughs> listeners who did not like our 5th edition review. Well, didn't like the fact that we reviewed 5th edition at all. Well... I thought he was going to say something like, you know, listen to Nick's voice or the Vince voice. I'm like, ah! <laughs> nah. Yeah, I thought that was going to go a whole different direction. Yeah. Yeah, I did too. <laughs> He's the, the one guy that always calls in or writes in and says that he wa- Crispy makes him vomit every time he hears his voice, so. Oh, uh, well. So Crispy has a hater out I there. I want to see a doctor about oh, that. This, is, this episode is 100% Crispy free. So it's original. It's original recipe. Recipe. It's not extra crispy. No, no extra crispy. All right. So our next uh, voicemail comes in from guess who? Uh, Christopher Walken. Anything. Christopher Walken. Close. DM Kojo. I'm betting DM Kojo. You're right. DM Kojo. Oh my God! Yay! What do I win? Uh, you win three platinum. But I like electrum pieces. Fine, you can have one electric. I'll take platinum, too. That's okay. <laughs> All right, here we go. You're not hey, our buyers, this is DM Kojo. Just wanted to call in with a few thoughts about the uh, review you guys did of 5th edition D&D. I have the starter set, but granted, I have not gone through it much. Uh, same with the free PDF. So uh, your breakdown of it was very informative and helpful to me. Uh, and here's the different things that are in each chapter and whatnot. I think you guys did a great job of that. Um, the, uh, I guess, the part that, that was a little frustrating is that I felt like you were always comparing it to first edition, and I don't think it was ever intended to be first edition or anything like first edition. Um, when you talk about the overpoweredness of the magic system, or the um, the uh, other things like uh, healing and the XP chart, how XP works. Uh, it sounds like more like you were frustrated that it wasn't like first edition. And my curious point, I guess, is how does it compare within the bounds of 5e itself? Meaning, is the spell system overpowered relative to the monsters and their abilities? Or is it still fairly balanced so that there is still a threat of players being killed? Maybe they, you know, maybe it's power creep on both sides of the uh, screen, and therefore it's more balanced. I don't know. I'm just throwing that out there. 
that when you review a game, I think it's important to look at it within itself, not necessarily comparing it to other editions, because, of course, it's never going to live up to the edition that we grew up with and loved and still play. So uh, I don't think 5e is going to be my edition either. Uh, I would definitely give it a try. Uh, a read-through is good, but I think trying it is the ultimate test. So uh, I'll definitely do that at some point. But uh, so overall, a good review. A little overly sarcastic, perhaps, but, uh, um, you know, I, I, you know, you guys gave it a fair shake than I thought you would initially, so I appreciate that. Keep up the great work, guys. Talk to you later. Okay. Thank you, DM Kojo. Anyone have any comments? Uh, yeah, I do have a few. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Go ahead. Go. All right, so, yeah, I do have a few comments from what DM Kojo said. I appreciate the feedback there. From what I understand, though, when they were creating this new edition of D&D, they wanted it to be as, from what I understand, you could tailor it to whatever way you want, and that was also including people who played first edition. Or basic, or anything else. Or basic, or something like that. So, taking that into consideration from what I've always read on when this was being play tested and, 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 and rewritten through all, all that time. That was one of the things they wanted to, they were trying to go back to that thing. Now from, from what I've read, it doesn't seem like that at all. <laughs> so <laughs> if anything, they've taken steps in a whole other direction. That's that's how I interpret it. I might I might give it a, a, a I might play it sometime, just to just to try it out, maybe at a convention. But I don't think it's going to be my game of choice at home, for my gaming group. So, so yeah, that was one of the things that they that they were so touting when they were first designing it. So, oh, you can make it just like first edition or something, you know, to that effect. You know what I mean? That was what I kind of got out because they were getting a lot of, they wanted a lot of feedback from the community. And they wanted to try to get a, all the people who were older gamers back into the fold. So, I don't know. That's kind yeah, of my take you know, on what it. I would, what I would say is, I think it it you have to have a common frame of reference. So mm-hmm. you can't just start, you know, I understand what what he's saying, but you kind of have to have something you could compare it to because you're you're talking about it to a group of people who, you know, primarily you're addressing it to people who might be interested in playing it. Well, to do that accurately, you have to create a common a common frame of reference and, you know, mm-hmm. this is a first edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons podcast. So most of the listeners right. are going to be familiar with first edition Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, which means that right. that makes the best common ground from which you can then talk about another game. Uh, I, I don't think you can yeah. escape comparisons in that regard. And also, now, and, and, and as I said earlier, I, I need to, I'm, this is totally my, you know, what I've heard. So it's, I could be wrong, but mm-hmm. I believe that when it was 
first being uh, touted, you know, uh, for people to play, weren't they saying that they had, this was the edition that really kind of went back to first edition AD&D? Yeah. I, I, I might be wrong on that, but if it is... No, you were absolutely right. right. That was one of the things they yeah. touted, exactly. Right. Well, then it's totally suitable to compare it to first edition AD&D. Yeah, and, uh, and, by, and by them saying that, by Wizards saying that, they set it up to where, yeah, in a way, you're going to compare it to earlier editions, whichever ones you like. So Exactly. It, it's going to naturally, it's going to fall into that, unfortunately, for mm-hmm. some people. So, yeah, that, that, you know, being uneducated on the game myself, I can only address the question of why would you compare it to first edition AD&D, and that would be my reasoning. I think that you have to have your common frame of reference that everybody can agree with, mm-hmm. everybody's familiar with. And then, you know, you have to address the fact that it, that's how it, you know, that's how I always heard it advertised. People would always come up to me and say, well, wow, they're really getting back to first edition AD&D. Okay, well, in that case, you, again, you can't escape it. Then you have to compare it to first edition AD&D. That's right. I don't think that's mm-hmm. what it was really... I don't think they're comparing it. I think the whole purpose was to mimic the old-style rules of having to be able to... If, you're all, if you don't like something, you can pull it out, and it won't break the game is the whole concept. Right. But, in right, but weren't they that... mentioning first edition AD&D and how they were, you know, how that could be done? That's how. That's literally what people told me. Maybe those people were wrong, and if so, you know, I'm sorry. I, I can only go off of what people told me until I read the book. But that's how it was explained to me. And I was at, you know, I was at a convention uh, last year, which I, you know, which they they start to sometimes run a, you know, the events start to run together. But uh, I do remember somebody was telling me, you know, this is, wow, they're really getting back to the, the same feeling that they had in first edition AD&D. Well, great. Then I have to obviously compare it to AD, first edition AD&D if I'm going to review right. it. Right. Yeah, that's how I understood it as well, Chad. I mean, yeah, I don't believe you're wrong in that. They And, and I think what Vince is saying is they're going back to as far as like how I say it was being a more or less a modular game, you can add or remove things. And then like he said, the whole system will break down <clears throat> like uh, earlier edition, uh, another edition. I'm talking to you third edition and, <laughs> mm-hmm. and um, well, maybe that is, I don't know, but that's why I said, you know, maybe I'm going to have to give it a play to actually give it a fair shake. You know, I, I, but going through the rules and themselves as presented when we did that review, I didn't see anything there that I was reading through it. Thought I thought to myself, oh, yeah, this is like this in a previous edition, or this is similar to that. I really didn't get much of that at all. If anything, mm-hmm. I thought it was, I thought it was more computer gamey. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you know, and also, you know, if you're going to review something, it's it's it goes back to the common frame of reference. But whenever you review mm-hmm. something, usually you have something else that you review it against, uh, so you have right. context. And you know, I guess you could have reviewed it in in contrast or comparison to you know 
Middle Earth role play, but it's you know it, it's called yeah. advanced you know it's called Dungeons and Dragons, Dungeons and Dragons, so it makes the most sense to compare it right. to one of the uh, one of the editions uh, uh, of Dungeons and Dragons, and since mm-hmm. this is a first edition AD and D show, it makes most sense to compare it against first edition AD and D. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely correct. I'm with you on that. So yeah, what do you think, Vince? I I don't know. Besides saying yeah. Yeah, so there. Are you just done with the whole subject and just move on? I'm pretty much done with the whole subject. I gave my opinion of what I thought of the initial review. Uh, I've been watching the game. Haven't had a chance to actually play it. Uh, I do have the book itself. Uh, I did. One of my friends did purchase it for me and gave it to me because he said, damn you, you're going to read this book. <laughs> so I do have the player's okay. book. <laughs> They drag you kicking and screaming into reading the book, huh? Cause, yeah, because I was just like, I don't know. And he's like, well, here's the book. You can read it. And I'm like, okay, cool. He gave it to me, so I'll read it. I've been reading it. It's interesting. I mean, it reminds me a lot of third edition itself, but whatever. We'll find out. Mm-hmm. I've, I've watched a lot of games and answered Kojo's question about is the spell power and the characters overpowered compared to the monsters from what I've seen. No, I, I, sometimes the monsters seem like they overwhelm the characters, but it all depends on the DM style, I think, because the DM that I saw playing was hitting the party way too hard with monsters, so. Mm-hmm. And that's why a lot of them died, but I think if yeah, you well. uh, have maybe light to medium combat, you should be fine, but if it's combat, <clears throat> excuse me, combat heavy, yeah, they're going to die very easy. But any additions like that. No. Oh yeah, I, yeah. I, really, I how combat heavy the game is that that comes down to the GM running the game. Uh, yeah. I've ran top That's secret true. where That's you absolutely only rolled true. the dice one time and everybody had a great time, but you don't have to run mm-hmm. it that way. Yeah. No, of course not. Definitely. All right, let's get to our next voicemail. Okay. Hey, RFI guys, this is GM Raceland Rocks. I was just listening to podcast uh, letters to the editor and. Uh, the one that the guy asked about the true neutral alignment. Um, I don't know if any of you played uh, or looked at the second edition uh, complete druid's handbook. It actually had a really good explanation of how true neutral would work for a druid. Um, for example, if they were guarding a certain area of land, then if it was threatened under any circumstance, then it wouldn't matter who it was, but they would take vengeance upon whoever it was that threatened it, be it a horde of orcs or a family that moved in and started defacing the forest and removing trees that they weren't granted permission to, or if a paladin, lawful good, rolled through and started you know, cutting down trees that may be sacred to the druid. If any of those three were to happen, the druid would then bring his wrath upon them because that's the way his true neutralness works. His neutralness was for, you know, his set of ideals, and it didn't matter who it was, he would fight them to uphold his standards and virtues to protect nature. So I just thought that was interesting. Um, If you guys have a chance to take a look at that, I recommend it because it goes through a pretty good explanation of how true neutral works for a druid 
Um, that was just one of the little examples they have. So uh, keep it going, keep it old school, and thanks a lot. Never got into the splat books. Uh, that's when I felt that it was all bloat in second edition when TSR just went, hey, let's produce the book on how to take a dump. Boom. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I never got into the uh, the, the complete, or yeah, I think they were called like the, uh, the what was of. it, the complete yeah. druid or... Yeah, the, basically, we're just complete book of and whatever insert here. Right. I never. I just. Got, I never got into it. Need, never needed the, it. The only ones I ever got were for the uh, the four core classes and the humanoids ones, but I never got the druids one. I never picked that one up. Yeah, but you know, with that said, I agree with what he's. You know, I haven't read it, but as he stated it, yeah, I, I'd agree that would be uh, a good example of a druids, you know, outlook on true neutral if. They're not for either side because, you know, to quote Treebeard from The Lord of the Rings, I'm not exactly on anybody's side because no one's exactly on my side. Right. You know, they're there for the forest. They're there for what they are caretakers of. And, and so long as that's safe, they don't take sides. Well, I also, along with their, people having a beef with the paladin, which I still don't understand to this very day. <laughs> What's the I mean, he, you know, Where's another the one is, is <laughs> as far as people not playing paladins right. I also seen people not play druids right. So, oh yeah, I've seen lots know, of people not people, play druids. I don't, right. I don't know where the, I don't know where the, the, the stereotype of you know the paladin being just you know lawful, stupid, and you know kill first and ask questions later came from. Nor do I understand where the stereotype of the druid being some, you know, tree hugging hippie came from. Woo! You know, peace and love. You know, you know, I I don't understand where that came from. You know, well, the idea being that because they, you know what they're the That's caretakers of the, the forest. Dru- well, I'm 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 I well yeah, but. They are. That's not how they should be portrayed. That's not true in the least. The if, if you're gonna go by what yes they are take care caretakers of forests and nature but it's about the balance of nature and they don't want to see that balance of they don't want to see that balance of knocked off kilter mm-hmm. and that, hence that's why a Druid is neutral. They want to maintain the balance. And like you said, you know, they won't take sides necessarily, but they will, they will, if they see the balance, will go off to one side if we're talking about alignments too much. Um, there's a really good book I have about, kind of has this in context. Um, it's a novel called uh, Villains by Necessity by Eve Forward, one of my favorite fantasy books. And, you know, it's about a group of characters that are, with all intents and purposes, they're evil. One's an assassin, one's a thief, one's uh, basically a dark knight, an anti-paladin. But one of them that joins this troop is a druid because there is too much goodness and light in the world she wants to maintain she wants to go back and maintain the balance so 
that's how I think Druids now should be played. But as far as if there's too much out of balance, they'll take a side. And it might be the evil side. You know? If there's mm-hmm. too much good and light in the world, it throws it off kilter. So they might go on yeah. the evil side. Yeah, it's, it sounds like a more kind of zen outlook, I guess you'd say. The yin and the yang, they're trying to maintain that. Uh, yeah, they, I could see something like that. Balance. Yeah, I, I guess in my game, I just I like to portray them more as they're neutral in the fact that their their first priority is is to uh, an aspect of the world that nobody else uh, uh, is really interested in, or, or you know, the, uh, both good and evil could destroy the forest for their own reasons. But the druid is is seen as neutral because he never, you know, because he might uh, take, you know, as as the caller said, he might take vengeance on uh, innocent or apparently innocent homesteaders. Well, Simply here's because here's they're the not thi- valuing the same value. Yeah, but I have does. a little bit of a contention with that because uh, if there was someone who, say, for example, well, if there was a village not too far away, and they needed more farmland because the village is growing and they need more food, and there's villagers. Yeah, but I see that like the, the druid meeting. would say. This is a sacred forest. This this grove is sacred, and that's actually to say a sacred grove would be very historically correct as far as from a Celtic or or from a Nordic is, view. Oh no, I agree. But when they would say, "Sorry, about, you need more land," I my suggestion is to move someplace else because the trees need to live too. There, you know, why, uh, if nobody else is listening, a, I don't necessarily think a druid would be like that. Uh, well, in I your game, they the, may not be. I, I think it all depends on the situation. I think the druid would maybe approach, or hopefully the villagers would approach the druid or vice versa, and they would see how they can, maybe the druid say, okay, maybe this area here you can have because this is overgrown and it is untended, yes, but this you can have this portion here. As long as you don't... Yeah, you know see, I, I look mean? at it more like the druid would feel like he didn't have the authority to do that because it's more like you know how the uh, Native American Indians looked at at land. You know, they were just like, "Well, you can't own land." You know, nah, it, it, I don't know if I approach. That's how I see it. I they they would go to the druid and say, "Hey, you know, uh, you got this whole nice stretch of land. We'd like to, uh, you know, we're we're in desperate need of 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 growing more crops." And the druid would say. Yeah, well, the what's already there is in desperate need of of continuing to live. Also, so you know, I'm not the I, I don't have the authority to to give you the right to take over this area of the sacred grove. I'm simply a caretaker. My job well, the, is the to protect. The whole forest it. isn't the sacred. The whole forest isn't going to be right. The sacred but grove. what if in your what if what if in your game that druid sees. All the uh, you know the the damage that has been done to the wilds. Maybe the forest has continued to shrink uh, as as humans continue to uh, to reduce it for whatever material and that's where gain. I talk about the balance thing, right? And I, I but I look at it this way. I just say that the druid would see himself as not having the authority to say that. That the druid feels like he has been vested 
with this role as a caretaker of this particular forest. And, you know, if, if they want, if he gets a, 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 if the forest or the god of nature who he venerates or whatever, uh, you know, tells him in a dream, yes, do this, it's for the greater good or it's for what, what we feel is the greater good, then, yeah, he would probably do it. But otherwise, I don't think he would feel that he himself would have that authority. Mm. I mean, he's given a role. He knows it, you know. Uh, that's his. That's his duty. That's his calling. You said duty. <laughs> duty, Nick. <laughs> I don't know. I I see. I I like again. I see that the druid. He's he or she is. Like, yeah, is a caretaker of na- nature, but they also try to maintain the balance in nature, and there are going to be certain circumstances where. His belief in the balance is, yeah, is going to be called into question, and if it goes too far out of balance, I think he would choose a side. Well, perhaps. I think on this one, we'll just have to agree to disagree. Okay. <laughs> so, to disagree. Okay. All right. Said. Anyway, let's go to our last final voicemail here. RFI folks, this is DM Kojo. I've got a question for you about conventions and kids. My eight-year-old son, Chase, uh, asked me tonight when he gets to go to GaryCon with me. Um, I think eight's a little bit young um, for me to bring him. But I told him I wasn't sure I'd think about it. I'm leaning towards 12 or 13. Uh, so I'm just curious, with though you have kids, um, what age did you decide to take them to their first convention? And if you don't have kids, I'm curious about any experiences you have at conventions with kids at the table. Do you feel that it restrains you from having as much fun because you can't be yourself or drop the profanities or anything like that? Or do you find that... Uh, that helps them, helps your game. Thanks, bye. All right, well, I'll do mine first since I have no kids. And um, I think uh, kids at the table hinder role-playing, is my, depending on how old they are. I mean, yeah, they could be great role-players, but I feel as an adult sitting with a kid, you shouldn't be sitting there just letting them loose on everything because they're a kid. There's some things kids shouldn't hear. And uh, I played in a couple convention games where there were kids and they were just utterly annoying little kids. They were just sitting there, running around in circles, didn't really care until it was time to roll the dice, so no. And in my groups, I don't allow kids at all. have to be 18 plus. That's just my opinion. Nick, you have kids. What do you do? Um, I'll slightly disagree there. Okay, that's fine. Certain acts. I would say... Just reflecting from my own experiences and being a parent mm-hmm. and having a, having one of my kids interested in role playing, I found that if you're gonna uh, particular if we're gonna just talk about conventions themselves, that's fine because that's the only time I really played with them myself. So right, um, I th- I think as a parent, you know your kid. You know your child the best, and 
I thought, I think my first convention experience for me, I think I was like 12, maybe 13, you know? That was my first, and I think that's a good time to have your kids, if they're going to go to a convention with you, is probably the best time to do it. Younger, uh, I would have to agree with Vince, though, if they're, there's a maturity level for the child as far as how, you know, cause they're still learning how the world works and, and getting those, all those social interactions and how people react to each other. They're, they're not, they're not, you know, they're not that savvy with it yet. So, and also I've, I have seen yeah at conventions where the parents bring their kids who are, who were way too young. And uh, they let their kids pretty much do whatever, and it does take away from the experience. And that's that's just that's a bad reflection on the parent, not the child necessarily. That's just poor parenting, and I've seen that for a long time. Well, when so, I when I went to that one convention when Mepicon, they, all the parents decided they were all going to bring kids except for me and another player, and obviously the DM. And mm-hmm. it was fine at first. They were fine. Then it just became like the kids started getting, getting off their parents' lap, running around, spinning in circles, going, is it time for me to roll dice yet? Going to the, you know, screaming. And these were, were probably little kids, like younger than 10 years old, I'm assuming. Uh, some of them were 10. Some of them were 8. Some of them were like 5. We shouldn't yeah. be there. So but... they're like 10 or younger. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's what I mean that, you know, when you're that age or younger, you're you're a kid. you got the, the attention span of... You know, a titsy fly. I mean, you know, ooh, look, something shiny, and then you're off. You know, that's one thing I found out when I ran my own group of, of, of the kids that were that were relatively young age. You know, their attention spans very short. So keeping their attention is really hard to do. So I would say the role playing experience, you got to do it in little segments, maybe no more than a couple hours, and you got to take a break, then you get back to it. But um, I would say to Kojo, I would, I would probably wait, you know, wait a, wait a few more years until at least or maybe 11 or 12, because that's when m- my daughter Anna, when I had her first go, she was like, uh, she was 12 or 13 years old, and she was, you know, mature enough to understand and, and, and how to act and everything like that. Still, I still I still say that a lot of people are affected by kids under eighteen playing at the gaming table. I mean, you still, as an adult, still feel that you shouldn't say certain things, and mm-hmm. maybe you shouldn't say them to begin with. But you know, you're there to relax and have a good time, so you shouldn't have to be hindered by political correctness or you know making sure you don't say the f word because you know hell maybe that's what you want to say because that helps you relax. So, you know, I'm not going to judge you for that. But right. Oh, maybe I agree. you want your character but to do I think something. That when that happens, like if it's at a, like your your local group, like your own home group, that's where you have to go approach the whole group and say, you know what, I would like to have my son or daughter come into this game. What does everybody feel about that? And this is what I think. But when it comes to like a you know, convention, unfortunately, you don't have that. Uh, uh, you don't have that, uh, 
you know, communication going on. I mean, you go into a game, but you know what? You going going even to some conventions when you you uh you sign up for a game, they have the maturity level right there. Uh, generally for for the uh for the event, you know? Yeah. For 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 as far as age group. So I, at least I know at Origins they have it listed for all their events, you know the the age group that it's acceptable to. Wasn't Gen Con so, the same way? I believe yeah, Gen, Gen Con is the same, is way, the same way, and and so is Gary Con and Nexus was as well. Most conventions are. Uh, you know, my view on it is this. Yeah. One, my daughter is eleven. I still haven't taken her mainly because she's not interested in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I and. I think the parents need to remember a couple of things. One, it's you really, as a parent, you have to look, you know, your child, you know, can they, do they really enjoy this game and they're going to sit there and take it seriously? Or is this really more you trying to live through your child and mold them into what you want them to be? So, you know, you're like, you're talking, are you talking your child into this? In other words, Hmm. and if you are, don't do this because they are, you know, if you really want to introduce them to gaming, then there are going, there are almost always games out there at conventions that are catered to this very thing, to bringing in young children and, and introducing them to the game. Get them in one of those games. But remember that the other players who have signed up for this game, they paid money to be in yep. this game. And... If you you know so don't just think about well I think this would be a great experience for little Tommy to do this, but you know that little Tommy has never you know shown that much attention span when you played at home with your other friends, and he's not going to at the convention either. Right now, also uh, if if you know that that Tommy is is more mature for his age. You know, or her, you know, little, little Elizabeth. Uh, and, and in the past, when you have had them play, you know, in your local friendly gaming store or at home with other friends of yours, they've always stayed at the table. They've always gotten really into it. They absolutely love the game, and, and they're not going to get bored with it during a convention game. Sure, that, that might be a, an exception to the rule. But if you know your child has a short attention span or is just not really into this game, then I think we can all agree what's going to happen after the first 15 minutes of play. And that's just not polite. That's not fair to the other players who have put money down to be at that game. So think of the other players. Now, as far as the, you know, uh, the reasoning that you know you might want to not be as politically correct, you know, I mean, generally speaking, even if it's all adults at your table, your table is right next to two to two to three other tables, you know, so if everybody's just, you know, cursing up a storm, uh, you know, you're probably pretty much pissing off the people at the tables around you as well as probably well, a few of the, of the adult players at I your don't table. It's, mean it's this like isn't your living room. This is, this is a public convention, so you actually do have to keep that in mind, too. I wasn't talking about constant, like, sailor cursing. Like, if you accidentally go, oh, shit, oh, you yeah. have to say, whoops, there's a kid at the table. I just, you know, made that parent pissed off, you know. Right, right. Yeah, 
understand that. I, I just look at it this way, you know, uh, when you go to a convention, you always follow convention etiquette, whether it's a child or another adult, because I know a lot of ad- adults who just really don't care for it. And of course, obviously, I've, I've let, you know, a word slip out now and then. Uh, I'm known to, to use colorful phrasing. But at the end of the day, my main advice would be this. Look real hard at your child and figure out can he do this? Is he at the maturity level that he will not be simply annoying the other players and not taking the game seriously? If so, do not bring him into the game with other people who have paid money to be at that table because you're, that's, that's a very selfish thing to do, in my opinion. You really do need to think about the enjoyment of the other people who are at that table. And if your child starts really acting up during the game, maybe you misjudge the situation, then maybe you should withdraw from that game because, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it, you're, you're taking away from the enjoyment and the investment that the other people had put into that event. And not to mention the fact that the DM has probably put a lot of work into it and, you know, he's constantly having to look over at the parent with that please keep your child in check look. You know, that's not fun. So, yeah, you know, like for me, my daughter's not into it. That's cool. I wouldn't take her because she, right. she, she wouldn't enjoy it and nobody else would enjoy after a while being at the table with her. Uh, so, and also, you know, uh, well, that's about it. I just say, you know, take a hard, long, hard look at your at your child's maturity level. You know how mature they are you know, don't, don't look at it through, well, I hope that, I think that he could be very attentive. No, look at it and say, Mm, is he, or is he not? What is his track record? And, you know, it doesn't hurt to reach out through, uh, uh, a lot of times conventions have forums. See if that, if the person running the game you like is on the forums. I've had people send me, uh, uh, instant messages before, uh, via the forums saying, you know, I'd like to bring my daughter, uh, do you think that would be okay? And I'll come back and I'll usually say, well, do you think your daughter is, would really be into this? If so, and she's of maturity level, you think that could handle the, the plot that's going on, then okay. Uh, if I'm running a game I know is not suitable for children, I'll come back to that person and say, I, you know, this is not really for kids. Uh, and I marked it that way when I, when I put the game in. A lot of times GMs do not take do not pay attention to that they'll they simply want lots of players so they try to keep the 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 requirements as open-ended as possible and that's not right either but uh yeah generally speaking know your child know their know know their limits and if possible reach out to the game master and ask if this is probably going to be a good idea or not cool Cool. i i I agree 100% with all your comments there. Or if the kid's really getting annoying, just punch them so they knock them out, and then that's the end of them. Oh, no. Yeah, I hope you're a lot. <laughs> yeah, I hope you have a good lawyer. <laughs> now, I always heard that uh, uh, drama, drama usually works really well with kids. Just kidding. Just kidding. Anyway, so we have some. <laughs> we just have some emails to read now. Um, Nick, you, let's start with you first for one of the emails. Oh, okay. I guess I will go first here. Hold on a second. Let me scroll down. 
down. Scroll, 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 scroll. Okay. Um, it says, hi, RFI. Found your podcast a month ago. I've been listening to it a lot. I've driving around the job, so it helps me entertain. Guys are better in NPR. Well, thank God for that, right? Yeah. And sports talk radio. Live in Minnesota, you know. Hey. So he, so he uh, first... He, in a past episode, he applauded the creative use of the create water spell as re, or its reverse being cast on a person to drown or dehydrate them. It actually forbids this in the player's guide description of the spell. It does? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> but he did have two other questions. Okay. First, is a half-elf always half-human, or can it be half-orc or half-elf? Um... I believe in the rules that the half-elves are always half-elf and half-human, as written in a player's handbook. But does not mean in your own campaign that they couldn't be half-elf or half-orc. So, at least in my opinion. What do you think, guys? I think I'm going to agree with you, Nick, and just go over what the book normally says. But, yeah, it's your campaign, your rules. You can make a half-elf, whatever you want the half to be with the elf. So, that's what I think. Chad? Well, my opinion on this again, it's it's if you want to if you're a buy the book player, then you know you already have your answer. But if you like to rationalize for your players why that is in the book, you might say something like, "Well, it's genetics. Uh, you can't have an elven dwarven uh, child because one, dwarves are naturally resistant to magic. Elves, uh, generally speaking, are considered to be very magical in nature." So the, the, the pairing of the two would create sterility as far as children are concerned. Uh, you know, maybe we know that orcs and humans uh, can, can mate because you have half-orcs. But mm-hmm. maybe orcs can't, you know, orcs can't mate with elves because they don't have you know, humans are supposed to be kind of a common denominator between most of the races, and that's why maybe they make, you know, you, you have so many half-human variants. Uh, right. But you don't have as many half-elf variants because, the you know, they don't have, have the gene that humans have, and the other creature doesn't have the gene that humans have that allow that uh, interbreeding. That would be my answer. I don't allow it. Uh, no one's really ever asked me. Uh, to be a half halfling, but you know, if they did, I'd probably consider it. But if I had to say no, that would be my reasoning. I wonder. Now, I've always, hmm. I've, I'm sorry. I, uh, I've always thought that uh, when you think about like half orcs and half elves, that was definitely borrowed from Tolkien yeah. when he put it in the game. And I've always thought that the half orcs were like D and D's interpretation of Urukai. Of the Urukai, mm-hmm. you know, because they're they're a mix mm-hmm. of half which is what I think in human blood, you know. Right, exactly, and you know they actually, if you read uh, Fellowship of the Ring, when they're in Bree, uh, there's a kind of sinister looking fella that's watching them in the bar, and he's actually referred to later as a half orc or half right. goblin. Right. So, mm-hmm. and. In fact, wasn't it that the, the orcs were originally like they were mutated uh, forms of elves or something like, like that? 
or was it goblins? I don't know. But I know that the that's how I was determined the half orcs and the half elves, and that and the half elves are also in Tolkien as well. And I thought that was an interpretation of it as well because they're they're a mix of elven and human blood. But like I said, it's your game world. If you want to have half elves be half orc too, sure. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Do it's you your game so, at the end of the day. It's your game. Yep. So that was his first question. He also had had a question uh, on, can you help me point me in the direction of some mass combat rules that are really simple, yet effective and cool? I don't want anything over technical. I was thinking it would be nice if the player characters could participate in some slaughter and how the outcomes of their individual combat somehow influence the outcome of the battle at large, like a dice modifier to the large-scale stuff. I'm out of my depth when it comes to mass combat, so I don't know where to start. So thanks for putting out a really great podcast, DM Trev. So, um, well, How about the battle rules for AD&D? Were those diff- I never used them. Were those difficult? Or do you guys use I that? used to have those. I don't know what the heck happened to him. Battle system? Yeah, that's it. Talking about battle system. Yeah. Yeah, you know what? They had they had one for first edition, one for second edition. I remember battle system. You can definitely look into that. I don't believe it was too difficult. I used to have a copy. And somewhere in all my years of traveling and moving, they just disappeared. <laughs> oh, doesn't so, um, Castles and Crusade have a good uh, engine siege system for that? You know, I don't know if they do. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know that. Uh, well, I was going to say I know Menser came out with his own battle system for yeah, I that's it was true. the companion or the master set. We used that uh, when we were at Nexus uh, Game Fair. Uh, Colin uh, knows it pretty well. He he runs a uh, he runs a, a, an event that actually has a mass combat battle, and it and it's a blast. I'm pretty sure battle system. If you go to the um, dndclassics.com I think Battle System has been released. So you can get it as a PDF. Let me check I'm right looking now. There, I'm looking there right now. I thought I saw it there. And I'm flipping through. Do, do, do. No, that is Manual of the Planes. I could be wrong in this. That's why I'm double-checking. I thought I might have saw it there. I just did a quick search for battle system, and then nothing came up. A lot of other things came up, but nothing related to it. Hmm. So it may not have been released just yet. On PDF? Yeah. Um, Yeah, mostly... Yeah, I don't see it on PDF either. I thought it might have been. So they do have was a Forgotten Realms Horde campaign book that might have some strategies. Yeah, in but that's actually that's actually different. That's just for the um, when you're doing like Mongol Horde type hmm. campaign, they don't have mass combat rules in there. I wonder if so. the splat books that like the uh, Rome campaign or things like that might have some siege rules in there too. Uh, or mass combat, I don't know. I, say. I don't have any of those. So, well, if you have the uh, rules encyclopedia, you can. And I believe it was actually expert set that uh, that Frank Menser put together rules for mass combat. 
And obviously, if you could get that or you could get the real encyclopedia, oh. should have all of that information if you Here want we to go. go that route. I found um, DM, it's the splat book from second edition called The Castle Guide, DMGR2 for short. It has uh, a battle systems rule in there for sieges and quick resolution for massive military campaigns. So you might want to look into that. Uh, you might be able to find the old chainmail rules too somewhere out there. I wonder if you can use those. Sounds like somebody has a hawk in the background. <laughs> that would be my window <laughs> being open. Oh, okay. Uh, so anyway, there you go. Um, let me read one of the next emails while Nick is closing his window. Okay, I got the hint. <laughs> there. <laughs> next email comes in from Kevin Long, and he just says, After listening to the Giant series, I was, also, I was wondering why you did not bring up the city of Hamlet. I heard that is a great place for evil characters. I didn't no, know. I think he's thinking of Nolb. Yeah, I, I think say, Yeah, I think he's thinking of Nolb, too. I was going to say, I don't remember Hamlet being a place for evil characters, but hey, you never know. There are a few evil characters in Null. There's a, um, I would have to grab my module Temple of Elemental Evil. But I do remember that in Null, there's at least one section, I think it's the Outfitter's store, where there's like a, there's at least one assassin that uh, is, that is in Hamlet. Yeah, I've always said Nolb was the seedier of the two, I believe. Nolb, definitely, yes. That is the Moss Eisley of the Hamlet series, Hive of Scum and right. Villainy. So, and it was the Outfitters that had yeah. the assassin. Okay. Anyway, sorry to interrupt you. Was there more to that, that email than um, events? Yes, um... Uh, one of the older shows when we talked about uh, detecting lies with paladins and uh, the ability to not detect true or sorry, uh, one of the older shows wondering would not deceit truth and detect lies be the same thing? I guess it's, so. It's a matter of semantics. It's the same thing. Yeah, it is the same thing. He also goes on to, uh, he actually has a question posed for DM Will, who's no longer with the show, but I could probably get a comment from him if I could find him. But he says, I was listening to the show in which you talked about your dislike for DCC. I can understand not every person is going to like every game. I love DCC. I don't know what it is about the game. Maybe it's a different style or of, of the halfling or the death or the funnel. I personally dislike the funnel system in DCC. I think it's just boring to me. I don't want to play six different characters and then pick one that survives as my main character. But I like the game overall. Anyone have any thoughts about mm -hmm. DCC? Well, actually, I, I I'm like... getting ready to... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, uh, I like Dungeon Crawl Classics, and I do think the funnel system is kind of unique and interesting. I, I, Meh. I can, see, I can see how some people don't like it. Meh. You know, if they say. think that's too much, uh, if it's just... They want to just get in and play with their character, but I think it. I think it's interesting where you can see where the characters, where they're pretty much starting off as zero level nobodies, they gotta you gotta see who survives. Meh. Chad. Okay. Yeah, I'm actually getting ready to start. Uh, Dave the Moderate uh, from the forums is getting ready. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah, we're taking a little break from uh, uh, B1 in Search of the Unknown, and he's going to run 
uh, a play-by-post of Dungeon Crawl Classics. So uh, I, I will learn uh, my opinion on that game, but I'm excited to give it a try. The only other thing I dislike map- about DCC is the weird dice, but I know there was a conversion chart in the back. But Yeah, you don't have to use the different weird dice when they call for it. I don't know what the I do like the magic system though. I think the magic system's kind of unique because every time you do magic there's a price to pay. <laughs> Always there. So, oh yeah. Yeah, that's more interesting. More, yeah, more and more a wizard uses magic, the chances of you become more corrupted by the by the eldritch forces of the <clears> universe uh increases. Like how I threw in the word eldritch? Yeah, I like how you yeah. Do yeah, a little, little bit of Lovecraftian woo-ha-ha right there. There we go. Now we just got to fit non-Euclidean in. Oh, I'll find a way. <laughs> anyway, so um, thank you, Mr. Long. Uh, we are, another email comes in from Adam. Just listen to your last show, and I think Nick mentioned that in a tough spot in the dungeon, he would he would want to have lots of rope tricks available so he can heal up. I don't think I've ever played that spell. What did you have in mind, Nick? Can you give me some ideas of the way you used Rope Trick? Well, Rope Trick is one of those spells when you're in a heavy-duty dungeon crawl and you're way low in the levels. That is a way for the party to rest up, heal up, maybe get some spells. You know? It's because... So what's an example of how you've used it just so he understands a little bit better? Well, say, for example, you, I'll give you a really good example. Please. Like the campaign that we're having, Castle Greyhawk. Okay? You're saying Grayskull in my uh, mind. <laughs> Castle Grayskull. Yeah, I keep thinking that in my Heart mind. Heart of the power. power! Yeah, sorry, Heart go ahead. Heart puke. Um, but anyway, Castle Greyhawk. It's like got like 13 levels, right? I mean, one time or another, you're going to be on a level where maybe you don't have... Because, for example, this, this uh, Castle Greyhawk, you can't teleport. Uh, you, you, you can't just teleport out of there or just run right out. And it's going to take a long time to find your the way out of there unless you, you come up with some real creative way of doing it. So maybe you're stuck like around level 6 or 7. You can't get back to the surface. Well, one of the things you can do with rope trick is if you have for maybe there's a section of the dungeon where it's uh, you your party has scoped it out it appears to be like a dead end maybe or it yeah it there's a dead end at the uh, at the end of a of a pa- passageway so one of the things you can do at the end of the passageway is like cast rope trick on the ceiling and you can go into this extra dimensional space and you could at least, uh, I don't know, camp out there for a little while, so you got so your so your party can uh, heal up a little bit. So that would be one of the ways I would use rope trick. So, I mean, that's yeah, I, and I think trick. yeah, that's one of the I think spell. one of the reasons why they made it. So. Yeah, I mean, primarily, I think it's one of those spells that that you that if you know, you really kind of. It's a very choice spell. It's often overlooked. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, yeah. it's one of the greatest of the uh, first level spells because it is the spell that allows you to have a safe place to camp for the night. If you need to camp for the night, and like like you were saying, Nick, 
you're in very hostile territory, uh, say you're at a, a deeper level of a large dungeon uh, or in an area that's just extremely dangerous uh, with wandering monsters and such, and you can't get back to a place that you might have made a base of operations, the rope trick is your mobile base of operations at night when it's or whenever you guys are ready to sleep for the night so people can get their spells back and everything you can make a rope trick and rope tricks are very nice but uh be careful of using them in extra planar situations i ran a a play-by-post game set in the nine hills and they found out the hard way what happens when they go up into their rope trick doesn't work too well does it well, they came out, uh, they they were in like the second layer of hell, and when they came out of it, they were down in the fourth. Oops. Because it bounced them all around. Because yeah. it is in itself an extra-dimensional pocket, uh, you might say. Uh, so yeah. it's a wonderful spell, and it's best used, I believe, for when you need to uh, rest and get your spells back, and you're in a very dangerous uh, environment where just setting up a regular camp might not be the best option. Right. Um, one and just to uh, clear up everybody for what rope trick it's a it's a level two spell, mm-hmm. and the duration. This to keep this in mind, it's two turns per level, and that's non combat turns. So that lasts a long time. So uh, at minimum. Your magic user who gets who has the potential of getting that spell at the level of third level, third level magic user can get that second level spell. That spell is going to last six turns, which would be six hours, right? Because a non combat turn, if I remember correctly, is an hour, right? Mm-hmm. So that's six hours. So that's a lot of time to where that spell is active, where you're in this extra dimensional space with with the party that they can get some healing, they can get some rest, maybe form a plan of attack for something maybe later on. Maybe cast detect magic or identify. That's right. Detect magic, identify on items that you have. Um, Or um, like I said, other casters of spells, clerics, druids, magic users, illusionists, I have enough time in that six hours to uh, regain a couple of spells. So, yeah. So that's why I, I, I as as I as I look at this spell, it's either one that you want to keep in your repertoire, or if if you're lucky, have that on a scroll, and maybe have it on multiple scrolls. <laughs> Particularly if you know if you're going on a long journey through hostile territory or in a real heavy-duty dungeon crawl like I gave the example of Castle Greyhawk. So that's how you would use rope trick. And as far as what the extra-dimensional space looks like, well, that's up to you because <laughs> there's no description. <laughs> yeah. So you just, just kind of make it up. <laughs> so Yeah, I, rope said, I, I believe when Never leave home it, without it. it. It looked like a uh, kind of like a uh, like an enchanted glade, except it had like this heavy fog all the way around it, which basically I always pictured it. I always pictured like the rope trick, the extra dimensional space was like a like a study or a library or a 
like a conservatory room or something like that, you know? Mm-hmm. That's how I always kind of, per, uh, you know, pictured it. Cool. So, yep. Right. Do we Rope another, trick. Do we have another email, uh, Chad? Or Yeah, uh, okay. We have one here uh, that came from Jeremy Cook. Uh, it's kind of a long email. Uh, well, I think I could, I could actually probably read this one. Let's, uh, let's see here. Hello again, RFIers. I'm still enjoying the, pro- uh, the podcast, though I only play newer editions of RPGs. I really do enjoy where this hobby, uh, where the hobby comes from and get a great dose of that from the podcast. I've also been GMing and DMing Pathfinder and 5th edition D&D for a bit but I've been running into extremely frustrating situation with an on-again, off-again friend who I've been running through the super dungeon, uh, through a super dungeon, to teach in the system. There have, been a, there have been a lot of times where he attempts to argue and control aspects of the game. Uh, now, I know I've let him have his way at times, which usually consists of loads of healing potions, advice, and some other good equipment. Every time, and this is not an exaggeration, a character is injured or must make a save, there's at least a low-grade tantrum from my 28-year-old friend. It was aggravating, yet I pressed on week after week, hoping it would get better. It finally came into a head this week, though, when he refused to continue after the first description of a location, with him arguing and complaining that it wasn't like Skyrim, nor how he expected it to be going up to this guy and threatening him for nearly harming him. So I guess somebody almost harmed him, and so he uh, confronted the guy. Uh, There was a reason for the difference, and I planned for stories and encounters, even with a lot of, uh, well, okay, uh, though, after a failed check in which his friend blatantly stated he couldn't fudge the role since his cousin read the D20 result, he accused me, oh, okay, so somebody else read the result so he couldn't really fudge it, and then he accused the DM, the, the poster, of cheating on the dice. I don't need and offered, uh, I offered to roll it in front of him if he wished. He stated he couldn't handle it if a character died. They had cleared three dungeon levels and had no near deaths, mainly due to my softball approach with three free advice. Even his wife told him to basically shut the bleep up and roll <laughs> dice. And his cousin said, you may as well read a book. Yet my friend continued to blame me for not submitting to his every whim. He made claims I knew were untrue. After all, I had been looking at the stat blocks. I found his attitude and behavior ridiculous, stating this is just a game. I know I've been more than fair as this is an intention for fun. I'm uh, I'm done jamming him, which is said because I enjoy the module and also showing others the hobby. I know people enjoy my tables, uh, enjoy sitting at my table, as people often ask me to jam and talk about the scenarios I run, but I cannot deal with a player who acts as if their uh, P, uh, player character, I guess, uh, PC, is an untouchable deity living out a Tolkien-esque epic narrative, uh, arm, uh, narrative, do you guys have advice for dealing with a clinically anxious player or anecdotes of similar experiences? Uh, uh, well, my first uh, bit of advice would be explain to him from the outset that this is not Skyrim and that if he's going to play, his character may actually die. If he cannot do that, 
you know, then tell him to go play Skyrim. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> outside yeah, of much. that, make sure he understands that, you know, the DM is the ultimate arbiter. And again, if he cannot handle that, go and play Skyrim because what he's doing is affecting the fun of the other players. And this, and here's the thing as a DM, you can go only so far uh, to catering to one player to keep them happy before you start making all the other players unhappy. So, it, you know, and you're never going to make that player totally happy to begin with. Uh, so why lose all your other players when you're never really going to convince the one player? I say in a situation like that, you have to, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one childlike player. <laughs> so, yeah, just, you know, lay down the law. Tell them this is the way the game works, and if you don't like it, you don't have to play. I'll understand. Yeah, just, yeah. I mean, nothing you can really do about it. If he's if it's going to keep doing that, you might as well just not cater to him anymore, unfortunately. Yeah. There is, um, if he really wants to, maybe to help him get into the mood, there's a bunch of uh, Skyrim D20 stuff material on the web, which is compatible somewhat with 5th edition or 3rd edition or whatever. So you can take a look at that. Maybe you can add those elements into the game to help him if you have that more Skyrim feel to the game. I don't know. Just my yeah, opinion. and if the other players want that also, I mean, you know, you got to make sure that you're... Well, true, you're yeah. Meeting. Yeah. Nick? Gee, I don't know where to start on this one. <laughs> uh, but I, I, as far as personal experience, I don't think I've ever encountered that, but I've read several instances on the Internet from people who had players who thought that their player characters should you know be they should never their characters should never die that it's all it's all about their character and what they do and if anything happens to that character it's the dm's fault or some of the other players faults that's a bunch of bull <laughs> whoa so. It's not. I know it's a. It's a bunch of horse hockey. Oh, <laughs> so it's he. And I think the the computer gaming culture has nurtured that to a certain effect. Yeah. That you know, your character is never truly dead. You know, it's like you know, you wait a few days and you come back. Oh, well, good. My character's healed. Wonderful. You know that there's no sense of risk and uncertainty. With a game like that, this person sounds like they don't want risk and uncertainty. They want, I'm going to go and blaster this thing, and I am going to be the hero. And that's it. Regardless of what other, uh, about a narrative or a story, or about how, how deadly combat can be, or how simply you know, finding a trap, and if you don't disarm it right, how deadly that could be. You know, that's that's the grittiness of the game, and that's what brings a person like me back to it time and time again. Because without without that risk, without that feeling of uncertainty uh, of, of what's around the corner or what might kill you, if that's not there, to me that's not worth playing. Because that means, you know what, you are not beating the the odds. You're you're just you're just blasting through with your sword or your fireballs and, and just racking up experience points. To me, that's not fun. That's boring. Yeah. I could get that with any computer game. What I get out of a role-playing game like 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 D&D 
or or any other game is the the I, I like the danger of dying. The danger that that maybe my character is gonna die, or maybe my character is gonna be knocking on death's door, or you know, there's there's something bigger and more more bad than you out there. And those are the risks that your character is going to take when they go out in the big wide world with a bunch of other characters who are not maybe so certain about how their abilities are going to be too. And you all come together and you're going to go into, you know, the, 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 the castle, the mad archmage. And you're like, Hmm, should we run away from these 12 goblins because we're all first level characters or should we take them down? That's what brings me back to this game because it's that risk. If you don't have it, then what, why it's not worth playing, in my opinion. Well, if you don't want that risk, you can always play a superhero game where there's a lot, lot, lot of combat, a lot of being able to go and blast it and hardly die. Hardly. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it doesn't happen, though. No, but I, I, I tell you how many Marvel games I've played when I've n- I haven't had a player die. So. Well, the player character. I hope you didn't have a player die. That would be tw- that would be tragic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At the end of the day, though, just lay down the law at the beginning of the game and stick to it. Nobody yeah. will ever accuse you of anything if you do that. I mean, the player might, but the rest of the people there will generally turn to that person and say, "Hey, man, he did say well, you could die." So you know, if if you're not having fun running the game, then you know it's a game for you too. If you're not having fun. There you go. That person's calling you. I hear it. Yes, they are. Yeah, yeah, I'm ignoring it. It's probably, that's that's not my phone that would be for work. All right, cool. So let okay. me go on to the next email that I have. This one comes in from Dad's Angry from the forum. Said osrgaming.org. Ah, yes. He said, what is the proper player etiquette when a player player's character is knocked into negative numbers during combat and he will be out for the rest of the combat, <clears throat> excuse me, and possible days within the game? Should the player remain at the table, or is it our right to leave? I used to play with a person who would disappear from the table once the character dropped. When their character was brought back to their feet, we would have to go find that player who was usually watching a movie or playing on his Xbox. I always felt it was rude to leave for such an extended period. It would happen so much that certain nights we would just continue without him. What are your thoughts? Nick, you seem like you wanted to say Hmm. something right away. I don't know. Um, so, they're saying is a player character died, and they're going to be out for a certain amount of, uh, for a certain duration. They don't know maybe if they're going to be resurrected or reincarnated or whatever, right? Right. So that person who's playing that character just said, "Okay, my character's dead. I'm going to go do this now, guys." Yeah, basically he'll get up and he'll go play Xbox in the next room, or he'll go watch a movie instead, or whatever. You know what? In a way, it kind of works because your character's dead, so they don't know what's going on. So <laughs> when they come back, <laughs> in a way, if they're playing ignorant of what if they really don't know what's been going on, in a way, it kind of works if you think about it. You know? Yeah, it's also and it's also kind of rude too. Also, it is. Yeah, I mean, I could see maybe taking a break for a little while, but I wouldn't say the whole game session. I did have know. a player like this once who, but he didn't go play Xbox. He just left the room for whatever reason and came back like an hour later. Am I alive yet? 
And then he would say, what happened? So we would say, nothing happened, you were dead. And he'd have to figure out what happened when his character came alive, because there'll be a lot of players that'd be like, oh, this happened and that happened. So you can't actually do that. So your theory of that kind of works, yeah, it does work in that sense. Yeah. Well, my, my view on the whole thing is this. Uh, Please. Uh, you know, dead men don't talk. So that's what he used yeah. to say that all the time. And, you know, I had a character die one time, and, and I started uh, talking to one of the other players uh, about, you know, a possible solution. And the DM looked at me and said, hey, you know what? I said, what? He goes, dead men don't talk. <laughs> and I've always remembered that. Uh, my view on it is simply this. If character dies uh, and you're, you're the DM, you should know pretty much what, you know, are they in a situation where it's going to be a long time before this guy gets back into the game? Or right. uh, is there an NPC he can take control of in the meantime? If not, uh, I have no problem if he wants to leave the table. And if he comes back and, and doesn't know what's going on, well, you know, like Nick said, he actually shouldn't know what's going on. He's been dead. Uh, then when he comes back, this is a great opportunity uh, for the other players to really, you know, get their role play uh, gig going because now they can, in character, uh, explain to him what has gone on. Uh, but as far as I'm concerned, you know, if the player can't do anything and, and I know that it's going to be a little bit before I can get him back into the game, I, <laughs> I, have, no, I, I have no issue if he wants to go. And, you know, when I think it's getting close to time for him to come back or they're getting to an opportunity to do so, that's when I'll just take a break. Say, all right, guys, let's have a break. Uh, come back, you know, uh, you know, go get someone to drink or something. Uh, and I'll go grab him. At, I'll, that's when I'll go grab him or have someone else go grab him and explain the situation. He's coming back and, and that the other players are going to have to in character fill him in on what he's been missing. Okay, That's well, how I handle it. That's fine for death, but negative numbers you shouldn't be leaving the table for. Well, yeah, and negative numbers, if it's not going to be that long, then no, he should stay at the table. Right. Any negative number, you should be still at the table, because, you know, you want to see what happens with your character, not just, oh, but negative three, see you guys later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if it's a short term, he should stay at the table, but if you know it's a long term issue, then I have no issue. I don't, I've never had a character stay in negative numbers that long that someone needs to go watch a movie or play Xbox. Yeah, I... I don't think I've ever had that experience either. Just about everybody in my groups, as soon as the person goes in negative, the, the cleric's running over to help or someone's stuffing a potion down their throat or anything, stabilizing them, whatever. Quick, shove yeah, a ham sandwich down her throat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let her die like Again, my you know, It's an issue of is you know is how long is the player going to be out of the game? If he's not out of the game for very long, he should stay at the table. Yeah. yeah, if it's a death, I understand. Okay, fine. You want to leave because you have no attention span? Fine, go ahead. If it's negative combat numbers and you leave, that's rude. That's how I think about it. Yeah, I I would wait till at least the combat's resolved and then say, okay. You, and then you have to look at the situation. It, like like both of you have said, if it looks like that they're in a situation after that and the, that this character's in negative hit points, that it's probably going to be a long time before some sort of healing, if not healing, but either like a resurrection or or raised dead is going to happen, then I would say, okay, yeah, you know what? If you want to go and do something, you know, for for an hour, go ahead or whatever. Yeah, I think it just, I think it have to be a, like a case by case basis on this. Yeah, that's fine. You know, you're dead, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, 
It's going to be a while before we get you back to town. Okay, I'm going to go uh, run to the store and grab something to eat. Fine, go. And, uh, yeah, that's cool. Sure. Yeah, I, I think it has to be case by case on yeah. this. Yeah. All right, cool. Nick, do we have another email that you're going to read? or was Jack? I believe we have one more, and I'm going to be really careful with this one because there's some Latin in here. My Latin really stinks. Aww. So I'm going to cut the greeting. Okay. So, so I... This person, they have a situation in a campaign that is one of those DM ruling questions the Sage Advice columns were born to address, And if you remember the old Sage Advice back in Dragon Magazine. So the I like the um, – by the way, I love this little letter to the editor because it's a very unique campaign setting. I like it. So the short scenario is I've got a paladin of Horus, Egyptian setting currently, in an ancient world campaign, which – Kind of cool sounding. Mm-hmm. Paired with a monk from Han, China. Okay. They're both trying to shake down a Roman politician who has stolen a relic dedicated to the god of Set. The pol- politician's goal is to hold the relic as leverage to force the rulers of the city of Abydos to expand their grain production so it can be shipped back from Rome to feed the masses of farmers disenfranchised by Rome's overuse of slaves in the farmlands. And oh, by the way, good historical uh, research there. Mm -hmm. Well, the politician in question was exactly defenseless. In a panic, he used an enchanted ring to reduce the paladin to a height of only 21 inches. After trying to stab the guy with a three-inch pugio, which is a dagger, our paladin instead use one of his greatest abilities, which is to shape change into a falcon. And a little side to this, yes, we removed the turning undead power of the paladin, figuring it was inconsistent with the Egyptian character and gave him once per day shape changing into a raptor bird, as Horus is the falcon-headed god. I'm like, okay, that's cool. That's neat. My question is this. Mm -hmm. Given his reduced size... Would our shape change paladin turn into a normal sized bird or a miniature version of the bird? I'm leaning towards ruling that a divinely granted ability trumps the minor magic of an enchanted ring. Ergo, the player has successfully found a workaround to being in so and being shrunk. <laughs> at least he as he is at least functioning as a size appropriate to his current form as he gains maneuverability decides if he returns to human form he is still teeny but i could still see an argument that reduction is reduction regardless of the form he takes by shape changing he has now become a raptor bird the size of a butterfly what are your thoughts i'll know you'll have something insightful to say you always do walente impalke which means well in peace dm sir thomas so what do you guys Mm. think I think that the reduction would only apply to the standard form, and the other form would give him the normal size of a bird. Hmm. That's how okay. I would do it. Chad? Well, you know, I'm here. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Give it, uh, really deep remind me of... again. Well, I was thinking about this, but remind me again now, how did the reduction come into it again? It was a ring? Yes. Yeah, it was a ring that the... Roman politician had and basically shrunk the paladin. Uh, I'm going with the fact that, okay, uh, it, it doesn't, you know, whatever form he takes, he's still uh, the divinely inspired gift is is the ability to change form. 
but the form, but the reduction is relative to whatever form he takes. So I would go with the miniature bird. He would just be a small bird now, much smaller, even smaller than he was before. Uh, but you know, I mean, like. I, I like the idea that, you know, if, if you wanted to, as a DM, uh, go with a workaround, you, you could easily say that uh, that divine uh, abilities trump uh, a magic item. So, so that, you know, you could go that route. There wouldn't be any issue there. It's your game. So, uh, just, mm-hmm. so in your opinion, Chad, if he became uh, enlarged to, say, 20 feet tall, he would become a really giant bird when he changes over to, to becoming a bird? Yeah, I think so. You know, I mean, the, the okay. you'd have to look up the, uh, I'd have to, again, reread the description on shape change, but I believe it has to do with the with the mass of your primary form. It sounds like the reverse of the enlarged spell that was done. Yeah, yeah. That's what sounds yeah, I, like. I just, I, normally I would say that, you know, uh, I don't know. I don't actually see one as trying to trump the other. One's simply changing form. The other one is changing mass, and... The one that changes form has to still abide by the rules of of shape change, which is uh, includes mass. So uh, I do think that the uh, the ring would still be in effect. It's not trying. In other words, there's no contest going on between the two magics. Cool. That's my interpretation. All right. I think I'm going to go with Chad on this one. I think (gasps) that. Oh, don't be so Oh, my shocked. God. Oh, my God, Nick. Does that mean you're not my yes man like everybody says you are? Yes. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that, that, you know, it was... I don't think it's a contest of magics either. I think it's the matter of the, the spell. And, and I think it, it sounds like it was the reverse of enlarge, which was shrink. And it was cast on the paladin. And even though even though his power is granted to him from a god, it's not like a huge major ability to transform into a falcon. I think because it's another, he basically substituted one minor ability that was normal for the paladin, like the turning undead, for this shape change. I would say, yeah, he'd be the size of a hummingbird. <laughs> so <laughs> if he changed into a falcon, mm-hmm. since he had the reduction. Uh, cast on him. I, I mm-hmm. would have to go with that. Cool. So there are your opinions, and there there are your very insightful answers that we always have. There. The answer is blue. The color <laughs> of this pen is royal blue. No, anyway. <laughs> and our final email comes in from Joel, who wants to speak about the uh, issue 151 when we spoke about the cone of cold, how it affects uh, items and metals, etc., etc., etc. He said he was with his group and they were fighting a dragon, a red dragon, excuse me. The red dragon cleverly had pulled a lever and trapped them in the cave with metal bars, uh, closing the cave up so they couldn't escape. So his magic user had a couple spells memorized. And one of them was Fireball. So he blasted the Fireball at the bars and tried to melt them, but the bars held according to his DM. So then the next time he decided he was going to blast it with Ice Storm on the hot metal bars. So his DM DM ruled that now the bars became very brittle and then shattered, allowing them to flee. And then he puts in parentheses and die another day. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Good use. Is this a good use of magical cold and science, right? Uh, great podcast, Joel. Heck yeah. yeah. It's creative. Yeah. 
I would oh, I think it's very, I think it's very creative. I would have I would have allowed it. Absolutely. Extreme heat to extreme cold. Yeah, it's going to go brittle. It's going to shatter. Absolutely. Yeah, I'd go with that. I think that's a, I think that's a, a very creative way to to get a similar uh, result as to having crystal brittle. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. And that's going to wrap up all the emails that we have. Aww. Aww. Letters to the Editor 5 is now complete. Uh, RFISTAFGmail.com, 570-865-4210 is the hotline. Uh, be sure to head over to org forums. Uh, we have revamped it, new new look. Uh, there's a Facebook, like, real-time chat. Ability to send posts to G+, now, plus tweet posts. There's an area for articles, so you can post up adventures, characters, etc. That's osrgaming.org, our forums, our home. Go there and uh, enjoy. So keep it original, keep it old school. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Goodbye, everybody. The Roll for Initiative podcast is a production of Wild Games Productions in association with d20radio.com. You can visit us at rfipodcast.com or contact us on our forums at osrgaming.org or even by calling us at 570-865-4210. This podcast is produced for entertainment purposes only. All other uses are prohibited. And remember, if your magic missile spell doesn't automatically hit, you're playing the wrong edition. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on Roll for Initiative. 